Welcome to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. Welcome to the second episode as we talk about hope for Christianity and hope for America. (laughs) You know, we looked at the challenge part in the last episode, and it's hard to hear, isn't it? It's hard to think about the decline of Christianity, the decline of civilization, our civility toward one another here in this country. It just seems like everything seems to be unraveling. And it's hard to hear about the decline of the church. And frankly, I'm glad we can move on to our second episode. That first episode is challenging, unnerving, uncomfortable. Yes, uncomfortable. That brings us to... This second episode, now this is the episode between the challenges of the church and the hope for the church. This is the transition episode. So we're going to pick up where we left off in that uncomfortable setting, that discussion of traditions and the struggle that the monkeys had with the banana, if you remember that story, and that habit that we've gotten into Those habits that are not really strategic anymore don't work in the kind of world that we live in. We're going to talk about this transition, and we're going to start with the idea of discomfort. A lot of people think that if you're uncomfortable, that's a bad thing. I love what Mark Twain said, and I've said it many times to many different audiences. I've probably written it in more than one of my books. Mark Twain once said, The only person that really likes change is a baby with a wet diaper. And I love that little quote because a baby with a wet diaper likes change because that baby is uncomfortable. And so God can use discomfort, has used it many times throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament to bring about great results. I'm reminded, and you know this already, but, you know, Jesus hung on the cross And it was not comfortable. It was the most uncomfortable, imaginable episode in the history of humankind. There's our Lord, the Son of God, hanging on a cross in agony and pain, in rejection. Just you name it. Everything you could think of is bad. It's uncomfortable to think about. It's uncomfortable to visualize. Obviously, to say that it was uncomfortable for Jesus is the greatest understatement in the history of conversation. So let's talk about what do we do in life? When do we stop and do something different? Well, when do you eat? Well, you eat when you're hungry. When do you sleep? Well, you sleep when you're tired. When do you lose weight? A lot of people lose weight when their clothes don't fit anymore or they don't have energy. Some people lose weight when the doctor says, if you don't, you're going to die. Well, everybody's going to die, but no, you're going to die sooner. You're going to say goodbye to your kids, grandkids, your, your, your friends, to life itself sooner than God's intended call for you to go home. Well, when do people change? When do Christians change? Well, they change when they have to. Let's go back to physicians. 
seeing patients. There are all kinds of situations where doctors tell patients they're going to die if they don't change something. The shape of your lungs, you keep smoking, you're going to die. Your weight, like I mentioned before, you don't lose some weight, you're going to die earlier than you're supposed to. Many things that doctors say. And here's the challenging news. Research shows that when doctors say, and get to that dramatic point where they say, if you don't change this or that, you're going to die. You're going to die by neglect, something you have control over. Well, the truth is, research shows 80% of the people ultimately choose to die. Now, they wouldn't say that to the doctor or anybody else, but that's what they choose. Well, what about your church, the body of Christ? I'm the church doctor telling you, if you don't change, you're going to die. Eh, that's not true of every church. I know that. Maybe you're in an exceptional church. If you are, you're in maybe, what, 2% of the churches in America? Likely you're in the 98% of churches in America. And I'm telling you, as a church doctor, if you don't make some changes, your church is going to die. You really want to go down in history as the person who, by neglect, let your church die? Now, I know people aren't motivated by the law, and that's really heavy law, and I'm sorry. But that's part of the transition that everybody has to go through. They have to get uncomfortable with the way things are. Come on, look around. Do you see the empty seats? Look around. Do you see the average age of people is getting older? Come on, think about it. If you're in that kind of a church, are you going to let that happen? Are you going to face God and say, yeah, I let it happen? I don't mean to be cruel or mean or anything like that. I care about your church as much as you care about your church. I know you care about your church. People love their church. People say, I'd die for my church. But would they really? Would they even just change for their church? You see, as church consultants, we see this all the time. And we can only help churches where they want help. Now, if there's a little voice in your head saying, oh, yeah, but you're not going to get everybody in our church to want to change. You're not going to get everybody in our church to want to be part of the solution. I mean, you might not even get half the people. Well, part of this episode on transition, that time between the challenge and the hope, that transition step. In this episode, we're going to talk about you don't need all the people. Uh, but I'll get to that in a little while. So when you think about change, there is what they call the lag effect. It's the human tendency for denial. Well, maybe it'll get better. It isn't so bad. Well, I know a new family that came to our church. They were already Christians, but hey, you know, or yeah, our church is declining, but not as fast as that one down the road. Man, those people are really losing people. Well, that's not really going to help, okay? So, what kind of a transition are we already in that we don't even know about, at least many of us? Oh, my thanks to Phyllis Tickle. Phyllis Tickle, she's going to be with the Lord now, but she was an Episcopalian Christian history genius. And she did a lot of research 
on the concept of when and how does the church recover from decline and that lost phase. And she wrote a a great book back in 2008, been around for a while, and she was inspired to do the research at the turn of the century. So it came out eight years after the turn of the century, from the 20th to the 21st century. And this book is called The Great Emergence, How Christianity is Changing and Why. And this brilliant historian went back and looked at Christianity, and she discovered something that I have never heard anybody focus on ever before. It was just like a light bulb went on in my mind. She noticed that every 500 years, Christianity has gone through a major sweeping change to the better. She basically says about every 500 years, Christianity has collected a bunch of clutter or it has adapted some useless strategies or strategies that are no longer useful. They're out of date and new delivery systems come along or something happens that is major that spurs the growth of Christianity. And she goes back to 500 years after Jesus And the early church, we read about in the book of Acts and the letters of Paul in the New Testament. And 500 years later, the church kind of got organized. And uh, that was about the time of the birth of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, let me pause and say it's not 500 years to the day or to the year. It's just generally about 500 years later, the Roman Catholic Church was birthed. Now, from our perspective in history, some of us, particular Protestants, will look back and say, wow, you know, the Roman Catholic Church was not an advance. Oh, yes, it was, because the Roman Catholic Church was able to set up some understandings that would limit groups that were not really Christian, but under the general umbrella of being religious. There was a lot of magic. There was a lot of adherence to to things that really weren't biblical, weren't Christian. And, of course, you'll remember that at the time of the New Testament church, there was no New Testament. These things were collected and became available and became written down and added to the Old Testament and available, even though hand-copied, they were available more and more. And so there was an enrichment through that process of biblical teaching because it was finally available to more and more people. And the biggest thing that happened in that first 500-year benchmark, that turning point, that great emergence point that Phyllis Tickle talked about, is that the greatest thing was they started training their pastors, or what they call priests. And before that, there really wasn't much training, so there were a lot of aberrations in churches. can't blame anybody. They didn't get any training. But now pastors, priests were being trained. And so that was a good thing. And she says in that process, they got rid of a lot of magical stuff and the mixture of pagan religions that had come along with the early church when it was just a baby. And so they cleaned out the attic. Yeah. And then 500 years later, sometime around the year 1000, the church came to a crossroads 
because there was a lot of division about who Jesus really is. Who was this guy back in the first century when we started counting history by A.D.? Back in that century and for a thousand years, there was the biggest question of all, the most important question maybe of all is, like, who is Jesus? Is he God or is he man? He's the son of God. It says that in the Bible. We get that, but what does that mean? Was he divine or was he human or what was he? And what happened in that process around 1000 was there was a council called the Council of Chalcedon, and all of the major players in Christianity got together, the greatest theologians, the thinkers, the Bible students got together and said, you know what, in Christianity, Jesus is both God and man. And that was a major breakthrough. It was a both-and mentality where people were doing the either-or thing for years. And so that escalated and removed a lot of the arguments and distractions of the church, a major cleaning out of the attic and the next step. And then Phyllis Tickle reminds us that about 500 years later, there occurred what we now call the Protestant Reformation. And that Reformation was a reforming of what was the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Church at that time, the Roman Catholic side of things, which had also developed a lot of clutter. The level of the Pope, the decrees of the papacy, all this clutter was slowing the church down. We got away from the Bible and more into church politics. So Christianity needed a reformation. And so there was a Protestant Reformation and a number of reformers, starting with Martin Luther, but going through all kinds of corrections in Reformation churches all over the world. Well, guess what? It's 500 years later, and we're living in it right now. So around the year 2000, and about this time in history, not exact year or time, but about this time, we're at a point where people are going to wake up and clean the attic. And I think it's already begun. So that's one of the issues of transition. Let's talk about another one. Where is the mission field? Ask Christians, where is the mission field? If you ask Christians in America, where is the mission field? Most of them will say, well, you know, that's over there somewhere. And what happened is somewhere along the line, there was this subtle idea that America is a Christian nation. Well, it wasn't ever a Christian nation. I don't even know what a Christian nation is. That means every Tom, Dick, and Harry and their spouse and kids and everybody is a Christian. And everything about the, the country is a Christian. Anyway, somewhere along the line, without anybody saying it, I think they got the notion that we're a Christian nation. I'll tell you why, because if you went to seminary or Bible college and became a pastor and felt called to be a missionary, you had to go on to another school to be trained to be a missionary. Nobody trained people that were going to be pastors in America to be a missionary. Basically, the training most of us got as pastors was to be the manager of Christians, not a missionary training Christians to be a missionary. 
So we have kind of a fun thing that we like to do in churches. We ask people, and you can do this, you can have this, ask people, do you know a missionary? If you ask a group of that, a few people raise their hands. If you say, well, who do you know? And they'll tell you somebody they know that's a missionary in some faraway place. Then you tell them, go home and look in a mirror. Because the word mission comes from the word send or sent in the New Testament, translated into Latin, the first Bible that was translated from Greek and Hebrew was in Latin, called the Vulgate. It was part of the Roman Catholic Church deal in the early years when they finally got it and started publishing or handwriting Bibles. It was in Latin, the language of the Roman Catholic Church, the language of Rome. And so the Latin word for send or sent is the word missio, and that's where we get the word missionary, and that's where we get the word mission. And in John twenty twenty one, it says, As the Father has sent me, Jesus said, in the same way I send you. I missionize you. You are a missionary. Everybody's a missionary. Everybody's an ambassador of Christ. The Apostle Paul reminds us, understanding that concept of being sent. So one of the things that Church Doctor Ministries is doing these days is we have developed a 36-month process of training the people that are interested, that's not everybody in a church, but it's a starting group, to be a missionary. And we don't call it missionary training. It would probably freak people out. They think about overseas. So we call it Healthy Churches Thrive. And it's 36 months of workshops and small group studies and a DVD series called The Damascus Road where Christians become missionaries. And it focuses on revitalization and renewal of the church and that mission vision that churches need to get. And again, it's not everybody in the church is going to do this, but all you need is a core group to start the movement within the church. Let me tell you something. There's something very interesting. If you study the history of missions and mission movements with every single movement of Christianity that ends up being called a revival, which starts with renewal in churches and then revival in the land. And only God does revival, but I'll tell you what he uses. There are two things that happen in churches with every single renewal of church that goes to revival in the land by God. Two things happen. They're sort of resurrected. And that is, number one, everybody discovers their spiritual gifts. And number two, we get back to practicing what's called the priesthood of believers. In other words, it's not just the pastors who do ministry, but when people know their gifts, everybody does ministry. And the staff of the church, the pastors and those kind of people, they understand that their primary job is to equip God's people for the work of ministry. Oh, yeah, by the way, that's in Ephesians 4. Very clear. What happened to that, I don't know. But when that comes back, things start happening. What do we do in Healthy Churches Thrive? We help people learn their spiritual gifts, and we help churches and pastors and church leaders to start being equippers and disciplers of people. The other thing that happens in churches when there's renewal is when people learn the six simple steps of how to disciple another person. It's really very simple, and we teach that in Healthy Churches Thrive as well. Because what that does is when you start discipling people, the church changes from a growth pattern to a multiplication pattern. And that's what it's all about. And so 
what happens is these people, and I'm going to talk about them in a little while, but not yet. These people that are involved in Healthy Churches Thrive, and they're not everybody in the church, like I said, but those people, they are the ones who uh, pay for Healthy Churches Thrive, uh, all the resources and materials and work that goes into it, and they make it happen above and beyond their offerings to the church. So, of course, they're willing to do it, and I'll tell you why later. We'll get to that in a minute. But I want to get back to this idea of pastors being managers. So we've already talked about in the first episode about the lack of pastors we're going to be faced with an issue that's inevitable and already starting. But I want you to think about pastors, if they're trained to be missionaries, like through Healthy Churches Thrive, think about that and think about pastors as generals. We have that old hymn called Onward Christian Soldiers, marching to war, you know, all that kind of stuff. And there is that warfare concept in Scripture. Well, think about pastors or other uh, staff people and leaders in churches as the generals. Well, you don't win a war if you send the generals out to fight the war. In fact, for every general, there are what? Thousands of foot soldiers. And in every revival, there is a very important component of young people. And so... We've started training young people for 10 months in a boot camp called Send North America. I've done a podcast on Send North America. It's so exciting. Looking for young people that are 18 to 29 who are faithful. They love Jesus a little more than others their age. They're available. They're not married and tied down yet. Don't have a mortgage or car payments. And they're teachable. They want to learn more. Faithful, available, and teachable people between 18 and 29 And what we do is we train them at no cost to your church for 10 months, and they learn to become missionaries to America. Then we send them back to your church, and we have a vision that someday there'll be thousands of these people. This is part of the transition now of this episode. Thousands of these people going back to their churches and encouraging other people and training other people because that's what they learn. They train people to be missionaries. Some of these young adults are going back to their churches and training their pastor to be a missionary. How cool is that? So all of this starts by finding the people in your church. These are the people that are going to do Healthy Churches Thrive. You're going to find those people who have what we call holy discontent. And I know I've talked about it in my book, uh, Who Broke My Church? Seven Proven Strategies for Renewal and Revival about holy discontent. There's quite a bit of it in there. But just in case you haven't read the book, let me just share with you. These are people that have been touched by the Holy Spirit. And we have a survey that would help a church discover who these people are. And they take actually two or three surveys. And on the third one, they put their name on it. And those who don't want to put their name on it don't have holy discontent anyway. So that's okay. At least they don't have it yet. But these are people in your church who the Holy Spirit has already touched. That's why we call it holy discontent. They're not the people that have unholy discontent. Those are the complainers. But these are the people that love the church and just can't figure out why the church isn't growing at a much greater rate or not growing at all. And it's just driving them nuts. And they just are so eager to learn and grow. And they'll pay for it above and beyond their offering to the church. And so we're not talking about you know, costing the church anything. And so these people 
are uh, just touched by the Holy Spirit and want to grow and want to learn, and they want to help other people grow. And this is the beginning of the movement in your church. And I'm guessing in any church, there's about 30 to 60% of the people that have holy discontent. That's what we're finding now. We're discovering that this underground movement that's not visible to anybody until you do the research in your church, yeah, it could be up to 30%, up to 60%. And that's a critical mass that can change your church. They just want to see their church grow. They think there's so much good about their church that they don't understand why it's not growing. And they're eager to learn to be missionaries. Now, that raises one other issue. I just want to close with a couple of these issues. And that is humility. I'm praying for a big dose of humility for many, many pastors, many staff people, And when your church declines enough, you're going to get it whether you are open to what God wants to give you, humility or not. But humility is so important. It was important. Jesus came humble. He taught humbly. He acted humbly. Humility is a big thing because if you're humble, you're teachable. And if you're not, nobody can help you. God can't change you unless you're humble and teachable. And that leads to an awakening in the church, a wake-up call. So that's a key issue, humility. One more thing I want you to know, and this issue will close off this episode. Unchurched people in America are more receptive than almost anybody in churches has any imagination to consider. It is absolutely amazing how receptive people are. And we'll talk about some of this in the next episode But for right now, I want to give you an idea to try that is so simple, anybody can do it. If you go out to eat in a restaurant, when the waiter or waitress comes to you, just ask them their first name if it isn't on their badge on their shirt. Ask them their first name. And then when they bring the food, simply say, uh, call them by name, Joe or Mary. We're going to pray for the food. Is there anything we can pray for you? Anything at all. Say it exactly that way. Is there anything we can pray for you? Anything at all? And then you're going to sit back and hear somebody who's at their job with other people in the restaurant who might overhear your prayer. They're going to give you something in 98% of the cases. They're going to give you something to pray for. They might even say to you, well, I don't pray. I'm an atheist. You say, that's okay. Is there anything we can pray for you anyway? And they'll give you something to pray for. I don't know what kind of atheist that is, but they will give you something. What I'm trying to say is that you will discover in a very dramatic way, after you do this with 10, 20 waiters and waitresses, you're going to discover that people, even at their place of work, are way more receptive than you ever imagined. Guess what? The media has fed you a lie. The enemy has fed you a lie. You have the idea, many of you, feel that people in America who aren't church people just aren't interested. They're not open. Yes, they are. They are very receptive. With all that's going on in our nation right now, they get more receptive by the day. So rejoice. There is a transition going on. And in our next episode, we're going to have lots of fun because we're going to talk about hope. Hope. And it's just the key to energize your church for an awakening that will move toward a revival. God bless you.
You have been listening to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. If you've liked this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to hear future episodes. Check out Kent Hunter's new book, Who Broke My Church? Seven Proven Strategies for Renewal and Revival, available now wherever books are sold.